This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Over the past 17 years, queer, autistic author and educator Nick Walker has played a key role in the emergence of the neurodiversity paradigm, a framework for scholarship, practice, and social justice work where treating human neurocognitive variations such as autism, dyslexia, and ADHD as medical disorders is understood to be a form of systemic oppression along the same lines as the pathologizing of homosexuality in the 19th and 20th centuries. In this episode, Dr. Walker is joined by writer Dan Glenn in an uplifting conversation exploring the edges and intersections of neurodiversity, gender, queer theory, embodiment, creativity, somatic psychology, and the human capacity for transformation. This episode was recorded during a live online event on February 16th, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hey, Nick. Hey, everyone out there. Um, This is great. I'm so excited and so honored to be able to be part of this. And um, I'm just, uh, I'm going to hold up your book real real briefly here. I am super inspired by this and really excited to talk to you about it. I think your work is um, so timely and and powerful right now. Um, and it's very needed. So um, thanks for putting it out there and thanks for being here with me. Thank you for being here with me. Why don't we just begin by hearing a little bit about your new book, Neuroqueer Heresies. And um, just you could tell us a little about how it came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, our, our full title is Neuroqueer Heresies, uh, Notes on the Neurodiversity Paradigm, Autistic Empowerment and Postnormal Possibilities. And there's actually three, three sections to the book. There's one, there's a neurodiversity paradigm section and autistic empowerment section and this post-normal possibilities section. Um, Kind of what happened was this book really is the result of a decade of work. I've been involved in uh, autistic community and culture and in the development of the neurodiversity movement since 2003. uh, this, you know, this idea of neurodiversity emerged in the 1990s, this idea of uh, neurodiversity as the diversity of body minds, diversity of human minds and modes of neurocognitive functioning. And this is, you know, an axis of unit of human diversity, like ethnic diversity and cultural diversity. And, uh, a neurodiversity movement emerged, which was largely uh, emerged really over the course of the, the early 2000s and beyond, you know, over the course of this century. So far, this neurodiversity movement has 
emerged as largely a social justice focused movement of uh, looking at the social inequalities around, you know, how autistic people and other neurodivergent people are marginalized and abused in, uh, in within the dominant society and how that intersects, you know, other axes of marginalized identity. Um, I was, like I say, involved in autistic community and culture from very early on and in the emergence of the neurodiversity movement. And I started talking in somewhere in the early 2000s about the idea of this emerging neurodiversity paradigm and the idea that there was a paradigm shift that needed to happen between what I called the pathology paradigm uh, shifting over to the neurodiversity paradigm. So the idea is the dominant cultural, uh, the dominant cultural paradigm around neurodiversity is this idea that there's, there's, yes, there's this wide diversity of minds, but there's one right way to be, there's one right way for minds to work. And if you deviate too much from that in certain ways, then there's something wrong with you and it's pathologized. And it's like, okay, how can we cure you? How can we make you normal? And so the neurodiversity paradigm, the contrast is like, this is, no, this is another axis of human diversity to say that one type of mind is superior, one mode of the functioning of the body mind is superior uh, to others is like saying, well, one ethnicity is superior or one culture is superior. You know, it just leads to uh, these social power inequalities and into society and to society not getting uh, the benefit of human diversity and the creative synergy that it fuels. So, uh, so. Yeah, coining this term, the neurodiversity paradigm, it's like, because there was already this growing neurodiversity movement. So I'm like, okay, neurodiversity paradigm is what, what we're aiming for. What does a movement aim for? It aims for a paradigm shift away from the pathology paradigm to the neurodiversity paradigm. And there was a kind of a whole vocabulary around that of what is neurodiversity? What is this paradigm? What does it mean to be a neurotypical, you know, a member of this dominant uh way of functioning versus uh, neurodivergent in various ways, being a neuro-minority group. Um, how do we talk about this? How do, we, how do we shift our language away from the language of the old paradigm that frames, you know, say autism or dyslexia as, as disorders or medical conditions? And I was also doing a lot of work at the same time around just autistic empowerment and what it means to be autistic when you don't view it through a pathologizing lens. Uh, what does it mean to thrive as an autistic person? Because the pathology paradigm kind of has built into this idea that you can't thrive as an autistic person because you have this terrible disorder. So, um, what does it mean to thrive as an autistic person? And how do one create spaces where that can happen? Uh, so there's all of this work around um, uh, 2011, I first wrote up this essay called Throw Away the Master's Tools, uh, inspired by Audre Lorde's uh, famous saying, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I wrote this essay uh, uh, for 
uh, first because I've been writing in you know online autistic forums and such, but I was like, okay, let's write something for publication. Let's write something to put out there that defines the pathology paradigm, the neurodiversity paradigm, and what it means to shift from one to the other. And that really took off in a big way in terms of uh, the influence it had culturally and on the development of the movement. So I wrote uh, more stuff. And so over the course of the decade or so, I produced, uh, over the course of the past decade, I produced a bunch of different uh, essays addressing various aspects of autistic empowerment and the neurodiversity paradigm. Um, a shift happened for me uh, in 2008 when I came up with this term neuroqueer or this term neuroqueer uh, came to me and that was very much uh, less about the social justice aspects of the neurodiversity movement and more about um, the creative aspects of it and uh, what, okay, given this existence of, uh, you know, this concept of neurodiversity and of neurodivergence, what does it mean to play with that creatively and to creatively play with our own psyches and our own embodiments? And uh, this sort of my ongoing fascination has always been just trans transformation, personal and cultural, and especially uh, personal embodied transformation. And so, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll talk more a little bit about that, this development of neuroqueer, but that, uh, that became really more and more the focus of my own interest. And so in a sense, this book is a bridge, um, because it starts with that old, you know, decade old essay or dozen year old essay, throw away the master's tools, defining the paradigms it has this whole section about, you know, the neurodiversity paradigm, what it means to make that shift in the paradigm, the language around it. And it goes into these uh, writings on autistic empowerment and this non-pathologizing view of autism in particular. And that's sort of like I wanted to get this out there. I wanted to get all this stuff in one place and make this my gift to the autistic community and to the neurodiversity movement and to the, the culture and society in which I live. And the final section of the book, which I, is, is called Post-Normal Possibilities, is focused on neuroqueering and uh, has this you know, really you know, a long final essay that's new about neuro, what I call neuroqueer theory. And so in a sense, the, the book was a way to get all of my, all of my old work in one place and to sort of, uh, about half of it is old stuff, the book is old stuff and half is brand new stuff that I just wrote uh, over the past year just for the book because I started thinking like, this is my last chance to say something about this stuff. This is the last time I want to write essays about neurodiversity. What, what's, what do I want to make sure to say? And there was just more and more of it. So mix of old material, new material, new commentary on old material. But like I say, a bridge between my old work and this increasing focus I have on the idea of neuroqueering and the creative potentials of the concept of neurodiversity.
Wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I think the I, I I was I was impressed how seamlessly the new and old material kind of is woven together throughout. And I love these little um, there's there's intro sections to each uh, piece, which um, almost feels like a little behind the like a VH1 behind the music or something like kind of contextualizing mm-hmm. um, as I date myself, uh, but contextualizing like, you know, what if particularly the older pieces, you know, um, and even in some way, in some sense, you're, um, you know, mentioning certain aspects of your thinking that have evolved further um, since that time or something that that has changed or um the wider scope of the, the field as well. Um, and yeah, that third, I'm, I'm definitely a huge fan of that third and final section, the post-normal section, um, because that, um, that creative uh, energy that you talk about, the, the transformative quality is so palpable in there. And it just makes, I, I think it really makes the reader excited to, um, to explore and like, I, I think there is this, you know, you mentioned like this phrase, the horizon of creative possibility or transformative possibility. And I think that's so um, woven deeply into the material. Um, maybe you could, as you mentioned, you could talk, talk a little more about it and maybe you could do that now, um, this term neuroqueering and neuroqueer. Um, yeah. Where did it come from and how can people um, think about it? Okay, well, it actually, I mean, this is great advertising here, given that this is a, a talk through CIS public programs, but it actually came to me in a CIS class. So uh, this, it, is, it is the product of a CIS graduate education. So uh, <laughs> I was, um, you know, I've been teaching uh, in the uh, somatic psychology program and I, I love uh, somatic psychology and this whole idea of transformation through embodied practice. And I'm a graduate of the somatic psychology program. So in the spring of 2008, I was a, uh, a first year student in the somatic psychology program at CIS taking a psychodynamics class, a class which I now teach. Um, but I was taking the psychodynamics class uh, with Dr. Ian Grant, who was uh, uh, a core faculty in the somatics program for many years and uh, passed on a few years ago now. Uh, uh, He was a tremendous uh, influence on me, just a wonderful, fascinating guy and such a a force for uh, creativity and transformation and everything he did and really wanted to bring out the... uh, the creative in his students and get people uh, uh, engaged in the creative possibilities of the work that we were doing. And so uh, I was in Ian's class and he assigned, uh, we were talking about this particular thing that was a point of fascination for Ian and it was a fascination that he definitely passed on to me and changed my life with which is how uh, how do we get cut off from our natural vitality and spontaneous creative flow and spontaneous creative responsiveness to the world and our our joy 
our, our vitality, our joy, our ability to make a spontaneous, authentic response uh, to, to the world and an authentic, spontaneous, unique contribution to the world from, that comes from something authentic in, in who we are that emerges uh, through the body in a sense, through you know, how, do we, how do we tap into the heart and the gut and the, all of the parts of our and potentials of our conscious and unconscious minds and just uh, live a life where we're continually joyfully birth, birthing the spontaneous and uh, novel and creative. And this is, I think, the natural birthright of every human being. And we can see it in the, you know, in the play of, of small children and such. And it's, um, uh, we get cut off from it. People get cut off from that by the traumas of growing up and by the fact that certain parts of themselves are not welcome, that they're trained to a particular styles of embodiment and particular like, oh, no, you can't do that. You have to act this way, act normal, you know, act, act this way comply with these cultural norms and depending on who you are and what sort of family and society and cultural environment you're living in, you know, there can be dire consequences uh, for falling, slipping out of the cultural norms, which can be anything depending on who you are again, from, you know, a rejection by parents to being shot by police, you know, there's, uh, there's so many reasons that people are so many and so many ways in which people are trained to be fearful and to have to repress certain aspects of the self. And that happens on a bodily level. Like what are the tensions that people unconsciously hold onto to keep themselves from gestures of spontaneous expression because it's not safe to be ex spontaneously expressive of one's full self in one's developmental environment. And so then the question becomes, how do you reverse that process? How do you free yourself from those tensions? How do you liberate the psyche through liberating the embodiment and regain access to that joyful creative vitality and to this authentic self-expression? And you'll get, get loosen up all of those, uh, all of those deep tensions that are the physical mechanism of psychological repression, and free oneself from that, and say, "Well, okay, who am I really, and what is the fluid, the fluid protean being underneath that, uh, underneath all these tensions?" So that fascinated Ian, and it fascinates me, and really is, is like you know, kind of the. the the primary focus of my life's uh, work. So anyway, Ian had us in the psychodynamics class playing with this idea and writing essays about, uh, about our own experience with this. What is your own experience of Re having to learning to repress aspects of yourself of having to put up some facade and the tensions that hold that in place have to put it put up some facade for survival reasons to comply with ex external demands do you have an experience of 
liberating yourself from that or discovering how you're stuck and how you've become fixed in a particular embodiment that limits you. Um, so I'm writing into that and thinking about my, my own childhood. And I was thinking at the time, um, I was very focused. Again, I'd been, you know, at that point, I'd been uh, very immersed in the autistic community and culture for about about five years. And I was really thinking a lot about autistic self-liberation. And so I was thinking how autistic people have very distinctive ways of, of moving and uh, how you know, how I learned as a child that I had to hide that, you know, how I, how I had to suppress my natural embodiment and ways of moving and develop this pulled inward tension uh, to keep from being targeted and abused uh, by kids and adults alike. And I'd carried that, you know, for many years and had started this process of breaking out of it and rediscovering how my body wanted to move and uh, discovering all this creative access and improvement in mental functioning and psychological well-being as a result of that. So I'm writing about that. And then I started thinking about my, my uh, what I thought of at the time as my gender queerness, um, uh, which eventually turned out as I got deeper into it, you know, eventually figure out, oh my God, I'm a trans woman, you know? Uh, but at the time I just thought about my gender queerness and my uh, androgyny in my youth and how I'd put on uh, for survival, you know, growing up in very violent surroundings, very violent neighborhoods and then being homeless for a lot of my twenties, uh, really I'd put on this intense facade of um, toxic masculinity as uh, as a defense, and I was thinking about that and what it would mean to break out of that. And what hit me was the process by which I put on a facade of neurotypicality, and uh, you know, put on this this facade where I suppressed my autistic embodiment, and the process by which I repressed my feminine embodiments uh, under this facade of masculinity, that those processes work the same. And, you know, we have this idea from like, you know, in queer theory, you know, from thanks to, to Judith Butler, who I adore, we have this idea of gender as an embodied performance that's learned and deeply ingrained in our bodily habits. And so, it was like, okay, you know, there's this heteronormative performance that we get trained into, whatever, you know, you get assigned a binary gender at birth based on your, you know, the shape of your genitalia. And then it's like you get trained to embody this particular thing that's unnatural to you. And there's, you know, punishments, you know, anything from ridicule to physical attack for deviating from your assigned gender role and from the embodiment of it. You know, as a boy, I got regularly, you know, attacked for moving like an autistic person, but also for moving like a girl. Uh, so the, um, uh, what I saw was these processes were the same. And I started exploring that idea in this paper, in this essay I was writing for Ian Grant's class about 
um, how those processes paralleled each other. The the uh, uh, the process of um, heteronormativity, you know, uh, being indoctrinated bodily into heteronormativity and having to build a facade of heteronormativity to protect myself and sort of hide my queerness. And then like, okay, there's also the facade of what I started calling neuronormativity that I had to do to hide my autistic embodiment. So first it was like, okay, these two are parallel. And as I thought into it and felt into it more, I was like, they're not just parallel, they're entwined. To, to embody heteronormative embodiment, you know, if you're embodying the societal standard of heteronormativity, that's also neuronormative. When they say, you know, act like, act like, act like a man, act like a woman, you know, act like a boy, act like a girl, in this heteronormative sense, that they mean like a, a neurotypical boy or girl, man or woman. Nobody's, you know, the, the enforcers of, of normativity don't want you acting like an autistic man or an autistic woman or an autistic gender fluid person. It's very specifically neuronormativity is implied in there. Um, and likewise, when, you know, when abusive behavioral therapies are inflicted on autistic children to try to force them to act neuronormative, they're also heteronormative. They're trying to get them to act like uh, non-autistic boys or non-autistic girls, depending on what gender they were assigned at birth. And if you deviate far enough from heteronormativity in terms of what you do with your body and such, you start building new neural pathways and deviating from uh, neuronormativity as well. And likewise, if your mind gets weird enough and your embodied psyche gets weird enough and further away from the neurotypicality, well, you're also deviating from heteronormative performance. And so somehow it's like, okay, you know, we know like queer theory is like gender can be queered, right? You can, you can, there's this neuronormative performance that's, or sorry, there's this heteronormative performance that's imposed on everyone, but we can queer that, meaning we can defy it or deviate from it, or challenge it, or subvert it, or creatively fuck with it, and alter, am I allowed to say fuck in this conversation? I'm not sure. But uh, we're allowed to, you know, we can do these things where we we escape, we liberate ourselves from heteronormativity, and this is called uh, queering, right? We're, we're, queering, we're queering our gender, we're queering our sexuality, uh, and I love this the idea of queer as uh, a verb, you know, it's an action to queer, to, uh, to uh, break away from the heteronormative performance. And at the same time, you know, we can queer our, uh, our body minds. We can queer neuronormative performance. We can queer our, our minds and our psyches and get away from neuronormative limitations of thought and embodiment and explore like what are the potentials of autistic, uh, it, autistic movement and autistic cognition and the autistic body mind and how far can we take this away from neuronormativity and what lies outside those boundaries and 
So neuroqueer theory boils down, what neuroqueer theory is essentially extends queer theory into the realm of neurodiversity and says, one, uh, neuronormativity can be queered just like heteronormativity can be and should be. And two, the queering of neuronormativity and the queering of heteronormativity are entwined. So if you queer one of those enough, you're also starting to queer the other. So much there. All right, let's think about how we want to proceed because I think what you just said is so rich and um, I almost want to let people like have a second to just digest <laughs> it. Um, but let's, so I think there's there's a few aspects that I have in mind to, to kind of proceed with. Um, the embodied aspect that you've been talking about is so present in your work. Um, it's a vitally essential part of um, what you are trying to convey um, through your writing and through your work. Um, and you also talk a bit in your defining neurodiversity piece about um, how people um, commonly, you know, hear neurodiversity or neurodivergence and think um, neuro means brain, but that it doesn't mean brain, it means nerve. Mm -hmm. And that in, from your perspective, um, we're actually talking about the entire nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, and you have this great, you, I love your writing, by the way. It's just oh, so, um, it's so both um, simple and comprehensible and, and beautiful and intricate at once. Um, but you have this line, so by extension, the full complexity of human cognition and the central role the nervous system plays in the embodied dance of consciousness. And I think a lot of people just think brain because mm -hmm. it's, it's, you see this commonly in the discourse, autistic brain, my neurodivergent brain. And it's, it seems like it's been perhaps one important step um, in helping to spread uh, the, the concept of neurodiversity and neurodivergence. Um, but also, as you say, is reductive. Um, so I guess I'm interested in, in if you could say a little more about um, the embodied embodiment aspect of your work, maybe if you have examples of um, how you have worked with this process of neuroqueering in an embodied way, and also how that connects to your relationship with your nervous system and um, <laughs> how others might begin to think about their nervous system and their own embodiment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have this wonderful concept in, in modern neuroscience called neuroplasticity, which is, you know, I mean, which is about brains and the idea that the brain is plastic. It can, it, it can rewrite itself. It is continually rewriting itself based on experience and action and continually evolving that the brain is not a computer, but more like an ecosystem and, you know, pathways that are explored, uh, develop further. You start using your body mind in particular ways and new neural pathways form and uh, what doesn't get used atrophies and fades. 
And so there's this continuous evolution of consciousness that's possible and that's biologically possible because of neuroplasticity, but the brain is not isolated. Like I said, as you quoted, you know, the um, neuro means nerve. There's a whole central and peripheral nervous system and it's all connected. Our brain, we're not brains driving around in bodies the way people drive around in cars. We're, we're body minds, we're complete systems, consciousness and the brain is part of the body and shares blood and all sorts of interesting chemicals with the rest of the body and is wired into the body with all these amazing nerves that run throughout the body. And so what we do, there's a feedback loop continually. It's two way. It's not just, you know, mind controls body, but, uh, but embodied action and embodied experience shape the, the mind by shaping and rewriting the brain. The brain is more like the interface between consciousness and embodiment. And so we do this, uh, you start changing how you move and how you sense and how you relate to the world and embody yourself in the world and you are altering your consciousness and developing new capacities. And so what I found um, as when my embodiment was constrained and limited and traumatized into this very rigid pulled in state, my ability to connect creatively and joyfully with the world was also constrained. And as I started liberating and seeing others, oh, there's, there's some vestige there's some, my hand wants to do this. And what if I just let it? And there was this process of learning to feel into what did my body actually want to do? What were all these things I suppressed? There were still vestiges of that there in some bodily memory of what brought me joy in early childhood. And I just followed those things. And that took a lot of work. That was a lot of um, a lot of work in Aikido and a lot of work in uh, somatic psychology and various forms of somatic work, authentic movement and Reikian work and such, and extensive uh, physical theater work, extensive, uh, uh, it was a member for two decades of uh, uh, this uh, experimental physical theater group called Paratheatrical Research, where, you know, really exploring deep capacities of the body to give expression to unconscious forces. And so there was a really extensive transformative process and it's still going on for me. It's still always going on and always work I'm doing, but it's really um, follow the embodiment, follow the impulses, let them do what they want, be this, uh, be in the dance of engagement with the world and with the bodily impulses and stirrings all of the time. And that keeps transforming the mind. And my experience is that continually, there's a negative feedback loop that comes, um, you know, a, 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 a sort of a, a, a spiral of a spiral of trauma and re, re, repression where our physical 
tensions and restrictions and embodied traumas keep us locked into uh, fearful mindsets. And that in turn encourages a more fearful cut off from the world embodiment, which reinforces the mindset. And so people spiral in that direction, but one can reverse the spiral and spiral outward and say, well, uh, if I start liberating the body, you know, something, what's the, uh, what the old saying, uh, free, free your ass and your mind will follow. It's like, I start, start liberating the body, liberating the body, getting the body moving, finding the physical joy. And there's this creative impulse and joyful engagement that starts getting released. And one can follow that further and further into this accelerating spiral of vitality and creativity and well-being and weirdness. Because this, we're talking about neuroqueering here. We're talking about we're talking about queering normativity. Like this is definitely like this means stop moving like a damn normal person. You know, really really lean into the weirdness and dance into the weirdness. And that's where the liberation happens and the, the, uh, the creative capacities start getting developed outside of the, the uh, little box of normative thinking. Yeah. I love that aspect of um, when you, when you're talking about this and writing about this, this um, the weirdness and the, and the very um, intentional uh subverting of these uh neurotypical norms heteronormative norms um and just the uh potential that that has to unlock so much and it seems like uh this notion of, of i love this reversing the spiral um because it feels like there's uh, there's something very intuitive um and very very non-conceptual it's not about thinking uh how do i want to move? How do I think I need to be? Or it's actually, how do I intuitively feel my body wants to express? And, and then how can I trust that? And I think that's feels like also the rub of like, you know, um, really learning to trust oneself in this process. Um, and I imagine there's also this aspect of really um, sometimes struggle for people because you're, you're really you are going against the grain of what's been uh, a lot of conditioning and, and potential, um, you know, like like you said, uh, processes of embodying um, cultural norms that you um, may not have even known you were you were embodying. Mm -hmm. um, and to this end, you you also talk about um, neuroqueering as a practice with which anyone can engage. Yes. And I I would love to hear more about that. I think this is one of the most interesting, um, I don't know, maybe provocative. I don't know if people would say that, but I think there's something, I think people have this idea, some people might have this idea that, you know, either you're neurodivergent or you're not, or like you're queer or you're not. And these are like, this is not for me or this, you know, some kind of um, gatekeeping or something like that. Right. So I'd be curious to hear um, more about how this is a practice with which anyone can engage. Yes. 
it's a practice with which anyone can engage. Um, <laughs> you too can neuroqueer. And uh, this is, there is a lot of, so much societal discourse these days is governed by an essentialist identity politics. Um, you are you are born this, you are born this way, and this is who you are. You're like this because you're born this way and as part of your essence, and this is not for you because you weren't born this way. And that's, you know, everything from like, uh, you know, the, the uh, old, you know, decades old idea in the gay rights movement of like, we're gay because we're born that way, which is kind of a defensive strategy in a way of saying, you know, we can't help it. We're born that way, accept us because we can't help it. We're born that way to like, you know, white supremacism is also, you know, identity politics at its most extreme. You know, it is funny because the term identity politics gets associated with social justice movements a lot, but the right wing politics is also very based identity politics. Um, and there's this tendency towards essentialism of you're this type of person and you're this type of person. And you have these this set of intersecting identities and it becomes very rigid very easily, in, especially in a, a, a culture of extremely polarized uh, us and them discourse, which seems to be uh, also across the political spectrum. Um, and so uh, I'm not an essentialist. I'm all about fluidity and continual uh, creation and recreation. And yeah, we get boxes that society sticks us in, you know, there's going to be people are going to get, you know, certain amounts of privilege or abuse based on just what color skin they were born with and that's a current reality but how fluid can we make these identities how much can we play with it and you know so i love this queer theory idea um you know core uh, central to a lot of queer theory is this anti-essentialism if gender is something you do rather than something you're born with it's something it's something you do, and therefore it's something that you can play with, and it's something you can alter. It is fluid, and there's, uh, you know, it has this potential uh, for fluidity, and therein lies this opportunity for gender creativity and sexual creativity. Yeah, people are maybe born with certain sexual leanings. There's definitely people who are like, okay, you know, I was just like, I don't know why I'm just wired to be heterosexual or I'm wired to be homosexual. You know, I'm just attracted to this particular type of person and not this particular type. And that's the way I am. And maybe it's innate and people are born that way, but there's also so much room for exploration and fluidity in terms of heteronormativity and how people can deviate from it and how people can specialize, you know, nobody, um, you know, you can be born, you know, uh, a lesbian, 
maybe, you know, you're born with a natural proclivity, you know, a woman born with a natural proclivity to be drawn uh, sexually to other women, but, um, you know, nobody's born like a, a BDSM leather dyke, you know, that is, that is a series of like cultural influences and cultural choices and ways of exploring particular excitations and exploring particular possibilities and evolving towards a particular gender and sexual identity and set of pleasures. Um, that's a product of fluidity. So there's this, there's this exciting fluidity that happens. Um, and I want to encourage more of that and less fixed essentialist categories. And that's thanks to queer theory, you know, it's widespread in queer theory. And so there's an, a growing sense of gender fluidity in certain, in queer cultures. And there's a very strong resistance to it, both from the right wing and from, you know, uh, uh, second wave feminist gender essentialists as well. Uh, there's a great deal of resistance to a lot of the fluidity happening around gender, but there's also a lot of like a growing number of people, I think, especially in the younger generations who recognize the potential fluidity of gender and sexuality and that it's something that can be played with. Well, I'm part of this idea of neuroqueering is the same thing is the case around neurodiversity and the queering of neuronormativity. I'm not an essentialist there. And yeah, I'm autistic. You know, I'm autistic. I was born with a particular you know, a uh, particular mode of cognitive functioning that does, that is definitely distinctly minority, you know, that is different from that of many people. And I can, I can talk to other autistic people and say there are significant commonalities. You know, there's a reason, there is a reason to have this idea of autistic because there's a, you know, like 2% of the human population has these certain commonalities among us, even though we're wildly diverse among us, we have these certain commonalities and we can say, okay, yeah, we could fit it. We can say there's a category of autistic and that is useful. You know, it can be very uh, useful to form identities um, as long as one doesn't get stuck in thinking, you know, in its mode of thinking, that's all essentialist identity politics and, you know, what boxes a person fit in and they're in that forever. Um, because neurotypicality, you know, neurotypical, this term neurotypical emerged in the autistic community way back in the early nineties and was the idea that neurotypicals are people with the normal brains. And so it's a sort of way of talking about what is the dominant majority, the people who conform to neuronormativity, but there's no such thing as a normal brain. There's no neurotypical brain. There's just people who can uh, who can comfortably or somewhat comfortably perform neuronormativity throughout their lives uh, more, more effectively and with less strain than say autistic people can. But there's no, there's no such thing as a neurotypical brain. And I don't really buy into the idea of types of brains. The idea of, and so much of the discourse on neurodiversity has become this essentialist thinking on types of brains. And so, um, it's, uh, you know, like you're just, you're born with an autistic brain or you're born with a neurotypical brain, you're born with an ADHD brain or whatever. 
that seems very limiting to me. I mean, I've learned lots of things from people who are neurotypical or who are neurodivergent in ways that differ from mine, and I've integrated them and altered my own consciousness with that uh, and altered my own capacities. And, you know, people do that all the time. Part of, part of what I say here is, you know, that's already a thing. We don't think about it as being part of like the neurodiversity movement because the neurodiversity movement, again, is particular, specifically tends to be a social justice movement around, you know, civil rights for autistic people and ADHD people and people with Down syndrome. And, but there's, there's, uh, there's lots of ways to diverge from neuronormativity and that includes meditating every day because that alters your consciousness that alters your brain that physically alters your brain and you get a you do a, a meditation practice you know, every day for years you are not neurotypical anymore you are not thinking like the dominant the, the dominant majority you do a lot of psychedelics you know, you start seeing trails full time from doing enough psychedelics and, you know, get your creativity permanently opened up and made weird by lots of psychedelics use. You have neuroqueered yourself. So there's, you know, intentional neurodivergence has always been with us long before that the terminology existed for it. And, you know, I'm very influenced by autistic culture and, um, queer theory and stuff, but also by stuff like the works of Tim Leary and Robert Anton Wilson about how do you, how do you creatively play with your own consciousness and expand your intelligence in exotic new ways. So uh, all of that is neuroqueering. And yeah, it's like, you don't have to be born gay or trans to queer your gender by being like, yeah, I'm assigned male at birth and I'm going to explore my femininity and stop performing this bit of masculinity that's a complete, you know, complete drag, no pun intended. Um, or, uh, and by the same token, you know, you, you uh, don't have to be born neurodivergent. You have to be born autistic or dyslexic or ADHD or whatever in order to neuroqueer because anybody can alter their consciousness with the right practices. Yeah, so I, I called the book Neuroqueer Heresies and, um, you know, I really meant that idea of it, you know, being heretical because it's heretical, you know, the early stuff, I mean, by, by the standards of the dominant culture, you know, that pathologizes autistic people and, you know, treats autism as some sort of psychological disorder or medical condition, you know, my basic stuff on autistic empowerment and the neurodiversity paradigm is heretical, but I'm also heretical by the standards of the neurodiversity movement, you know, because I'm non-essentialist, because, you know, the neuro neuroqueer theory is heretical because I'm, you know, I'm not interested in this essentialist idea of uh, uh, types of brains and you're just born with this type of brain. I'm like, yeah, you're born with whatever brain you're born with and maybe that's autistic or something, but whatever brain you're born with, you can queer it and develop it. It's yours to develop creatively and anybody 
can explore the weird. Anybody can neuroqueer. And yeah, so I'm very much against gatekeeping. I'm very much against, uh, you know, uh, people who gatekeep the term queer in the first place. Like that was always an experience of mine as a, you know, as a young, as a young queer activist, you know, in a, in in my, in my teens, in the 1980s, you know, there were like young queers who were like, yeah, we're just gonna, we're just gonna queer gender boundaries and go out and to, you know, go out and cross dress and participate in, you know, uh, street actions and our, our queer cross dress sort of way. And then there was, you know, old, older gay people who were like, you know, you can't use the term queer unless you were born gay. And we're like, no way, no, screw that. You know, that's like, and in fact, a lot of those, you know, older, older generation of gay people were very opposed to the word queer because they were used to it being a slur and the idea of reclaiming it was just uh, too, too, too blasphemous. Um, and yet now, you know, there's more and more just gleefully queer young people. I love the younger generations and how gleefully, joyfully queer they are and not constrained by gender boundaries. And that's where I want to see this concept of neurodiversity go. And so uh, right away, as soon as we put, uh, as soon as I put the term neuroqueer out there, me and some other people who were, you know, other fellow scholars who were uh, uh, playing with the term, as soon as it got out there, people started trying to gatekeep it. And being like, you can't call yourself neuroqueer unless you were born autistic and gay. It's, nope, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, nobody's born neurotypical and anybody can creatively diverge from neuronormativity and heteronormativity. So, yeah, I mean, one thing I just want to kind of like reflect on, as you said that, is there's so, I feel like the, the field of um, neurodiversity studies has just really um, opened up and become like so almost like suddenly to me, it seems like suddenly uh, so much more mainstream and kind of in, in the consciousness uh, just in the past few years, even. Absolutely. And, and so I wonder if, um, you know, just in the same way that, you know, the mainstream understanding of gender has shifted so much um, in recent years as well, like that um, maybe this concept of neuroqueering um, can also contribute to this um, in a way, like allowing people's understanding to just broaden, shift, and deepen um, as uh, it continues to become uh, better understood and, and more widely embraced. Um, so I also wanted to just ask you and mention like your, your whole world is so much more than just your scholarship and your teaching and writing. You're also an Aikido master. Uh, you you uh, run your own Aikido dojo, I, I believe, uh, in Berkeley. And um, you also have an ongoing webcomic uh, that you've been you've been publishing. You've been uh, publishing a fictional series um, that's and I've also created a publishing house uh, along with um, some other colleagues and friends of yours. So how does all of your work fit together? Like uh, how does um, or does it? Just could you tell us a bit more about these kind of interesting, weird, diverse aspects of what you do and who you are? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a, a symptom of the neuroquering that I'm talking about. Of that, you know, by by through this 
uh, embodied somatic process I've been going through of liberating my creative impulses, I find I'm just doing more and more weird, different stuff. Aikido is where it started for me in terms of somatic transformation, you know, and I've been, I've been practicing Aikido for more than 40 years at this point and teaching really my whole adult life, actually, since my late teens, um, and managed to keep doing that throughout all sorts of mess. I mean, there were times when I was like, you know, homeless and still teaching Aikido. Uh, so that's been an ongoing theme and that's definitely informed my work. It's really shaped my work from drawing me towards somatic work and embodiment transformation through embodiment work in the first place. You know, it, there's that like, um, and also just in terms of the positivity of it, that, that uh, again, uh, part of my goal with neuroqueering is, yeah, the neurodiversity movement and really the field of neurodiversity studies so far has been very, uh, very much about uh, pushing back against the, the pathologizing and oppression of neuro-minority groups like autistic people. And that work is necessary and that work is important, you know, that it's, this is essentially, you know, uh, pushing back against ableism and such. And, and that's, that's essential work for the well-being of autistic people and other neuro-minorities, um, you know, gotta happen. And it's increasingly not the work that I'm drawn to. You know, there's there's more and more people who are coming in to do that work, and that's wonderful. But I don't want to see uh, neurodiversity as a concept or the field of neurodiversity studies is still emerging. I don't want to see it get limited to that. I want to see. I've always been fascinated by the creative potentials, and in a sense, one has to have that in order to get anywhere. If you just fight against oppression. You have to fight against oppression. We have to push back against oppression. You know, we can't let ourselves get get crushed and oppressed, or you know, or let other people get crushed and oppressed. But there has to be a positive vision we're working towards too. Otherwise, it's a losing battle. We have to be working towards something better and have a vision of how things can be beautiful uh, without the oppression. And that's missing so much. I actually, there was actually an, almost an essay that I wrote for the book, but I decided not to at the last minute just because I was like, okay, I'm going to keep writing forever. I just got to publish this thing as is. But I almost wrote something about how disappointed I was with the field of neurodiversity studies so far because it was still so essentialist and really just an extension of the field of disability studies. And I was like, why even, why not just be disability studies then? You know, we need the field of disability studies. We need the disability rights movement, but there's something else in this concept of neurodiversity. There's something else about the creative potentials of human neurodiversity. And that something else is what I'm interested in. And that, that comes from my Aikido training. That comes from the idea in Aikido that we can do something else besides fight, flight, freeze. Confronted with a bad situation, we can turn it into something graceful if we're willing to think outside of the limitations of fight, flight, freeze and outside of the limitations of this other person is my enemy. And so the idea of looking for positive solutions and getting out of a negative polarized mindset 
is something that I wouldn't have if it weren't ingrained in my body from four decades of Aikido practice. And neuroqueer theory comes as much from that as from anything else. And then, of course, the other stuff, you know, yeah, I write speculative fiction. I write weird speculative fiction, uh, all of which is interconnected. Uh, I have a longtime collaborator, Andrew M. Reichart, wonderful. He's got a wonderful, uh, uh, some wonderful stuff out. He's got a, a, an amazing, weird, psychedelic sci-fi novel called Wallflower Assassin that I highly recommend. It's super neuroqueer. Um, and uh, all of our work is set in the same universe and interconnects, like his work and my, his stories and my stories interconnect. We've been writing, to, we've been friends since we were 15 and been writing together all that time. Um, even though our publishing is, is a much more recent thing. Uh, so we co-write this webcomic called Weird Luck, illustrated by uh, Mike Benowitz, who is a, a, just a genius. Just an, I'm just so blown away that somebody that talented is willing to illustrate uh, the stories I write. Um, but this, uh, yeah, so this webcomic is still in its early stages. It's going to be a very long epic, and we're only, we only published about 50 pages of it so far, but weekly, weekly webcomic, page a week. And so, and interconnected with all of the fiction that Andrew and I write. And so, um, yeah, that's my favorite project right now is this webcomic. And definitely um, it's informed by, you know, I think of it as being neuroqueer, as a product of my neuroqueering, certainly a product of all the embodiment work and psychedelic work and stuff Andrew and I have done over the years. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, um, I don't set out to teach a lesson about neuroqueering or anything. I just write the stories that come to me. And that's been very much that creative liberation has just been very much, you know, a result of my, you know, I was, I wanted to be a storyteller and creator of comics and fiction when I was real small and I got cut off from my creativity by being, stuck in a shell of fake uh, neuronormativity and heteronormativity. And when I liberated myself from that, it was just like, suddenly these ideas come to me and the characters just emerge from my unconscious and I need to write about them. And so it's just, it's a creative liberation and I'm just totally in love. I'm totally in love with that. I want to keep doing, you know, comics for the rest of my life. So yeah, everybody read the Weird Luck web comic. It's way more interesting than my nonfiction. Amazing. Well, Nick, thank you so much for writing this book, for sharing um, so much of it tonight with us. I, I think that this has been um, hopefully something that uh, sparks a lot for people and, and uh, inspires people to go further um, with your work, with their own uh, personal processes, uh, wherever they find themselves. Um, so I'm just on behalf of everyone, just really great grateful for what you're doing in the world. And um, thanks for being here tonight with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being my interviewer and partner in this, in this conversation. It's wonderful to work with you. It's an thanks, honor. Thanks to everybody who I can't, I can't see the audience, but I believe that you're out there and thank you all for, for joining us. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. 
We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.